All right, everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 141 on Crypto Voices. Today, very happy to introduce our special guest. Uh, just moved to wonderful Spain and uh, very happy to have him join the show. He's actually uh, back for the third time, uh, Dr. George Selgin. Uh, George, thanks a lot for joining. How are you? Oh, I'm just great. Thank you for having me. Always enjoy speaking with you about um, a variety of economic topics and uh, specifically uh, monetary policy uh, topics, as uh, I think most everybody knows that you're uh, one of the foremost experts in the field. So it's really always great to talk with you. Wanted to continue the little discussion we were having pre-show. You know, I've been trying to improve my own charting and I'm going to start doing some YouTube videos next year about uh, a lot of this different stuff and how it relates to Bitcoin. And we always chart things and tweet things about the monetary base, not only in the US, but around the world. But I think that there's another interesting market that kind of is overlooked. I, I don't really see it you know, spoken about on Bloomberg or other places. I think it's maybe it's opaque. Maybe it's just people don't understand it. But that is the repo market, the repurchase agreement market uh, for liquid treasury securities. You know, we had this event in September 2019, which was kind of a meltdown of a couple days. Mid-September, the Fed funds rate uh, actually peaked. Or I guess it was interest rates on repo transactions. You can remind me if it was the Fed funds rate as well. But it was uh, short-term rates for sure were spiking close to 10%. And the Fed had to intervene. And this was in the midst of basically five years of the Federal Reserve trying to normalize its balance sheet from the massive QE from the start of the decade. So five years, it really wasn't printing money. Uh, bank reserve balances were slowly falling. I know you've written a lot about interest on reserves, but let's, let's table that for this episode. But I just want to maybe start with the repo market. So can you just briefly maybe reflect on that event for our listeners on what happened there and why it was such a big deal? Sure. Uh as I think most of your listeners will know, uh, before COVID, we had uh, uh, another occasion when the Federal Reserve engaged in quantitative easing on a very large scale. That is, it expanded its balance sheet, creating reserves for financial institutions in the process. And that was, of course, during the, the great financial crisis that began in 2007. The Fed's uh, quantitative easing really got started at the very beginning of 2009, though it had been expanding a little bit before that. At, uh, some years later, <clears throat> the Fed decided it was time to uh, retrench. The uh, recession was over, and uh, it wanted to head back in the direction of a smaller balance sheet, not mind you, uh, as small as it had been before the crisis or even close, because the Fed's new operating system also adopted during the crisis calls for a larger amount of reserves, even in the best of times. In any event, the Fed was unwinding its balance sheet, as it is now doing uh, post-COVID. And uh, the expectation was that they could get the balance sheet down considerably. And so they were... Uh, they were selling off Federal Reserve assets or letting them mature, I should say. And the balance sheet was shrinking. But long before, well before it got uh, even close to the size they were hoping for, 
uh, as you mentioned, Matthew, Reserve uh, in September uh, 2019, there started to be big spikes in the overnight markets, and that included the effective uh, the spikes in the effective federal funds rate, but also in other repo rates, which overnight rates, which probably were even more indicative of what was going on. <clears throat> so what did that mean? The simple short answer is it meant that reserves were becoming scarce again sooner than anybody had expected. That, uh, that somehow it turned out that even though there was no uh, crisis calling for uh, exceptionally large reserve balances to be outstanding, uh, and even though it looked like uh, banks were a long, long way from being at a point where reserves would be scarce, in fact, uh, the behavior of interest rates that fall suggested that uh, they had run up into the scarcity constraint. And then the question was, why, even with still uh, uh, a very large amount of reserves in the system, why uh, is this pinch being felt? Why are we getting tightness in overnight lending markets? Well, it turns out uh, there were a number of things going on. Uh, and uh, I don't want to go into all the detail because I don't want to talk too long in one uh, spurt. But um, it was uh, something of a perfect storm. On the one hand, of course, you had the fact that the balance sheet had been shrinking. That's obvious. But there were other things happening that compounded the effect of the planned shrinkage in the balance sheet. A big one was the fact that the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury at this time, was accumulating its own deposits at the Federal Reserve in something called the Treasury General Account. So the Treasury was also, as it were, removing funds from the banking system, removing reserves from the banks to put into its own account. And, uh, and that also contributed to reducing the total supply of reserves more than what the Fed was doing. So uh, as it were, the Treasury and the Fed were, <laughs> were, were uh, uh, not uh, coordinating their activities. So the amount of reserve reduction that went on in leading up to this fall event was much greater than the Fed had anticipated. The other developments, which I won't describe in any detail, were regulatory. Suffice to say that certain regulatory requirements turned out to make it desirable or attractive for banks, or if not necessary for them to hold a lot more reserves than they once would have done. These were new requirements that kicked in after the uh, 2008 crisis. So all these things came together and they basically taught the Fed a lesson, which is, oops, we need a lot more reserves to run the system the way we want to run it than we thought we would need. And that's why we never saw the balance sheet go back down that much. And then, of course, COVID came around and it doubled again. So now we're trying to get it back down again. It's some changes have been made to avoid a recurrence of what's since come to be known as the taper tantrum of post-Great Recession, the post-Great Recession. Um, 
But it remains a question how much the Fed can shrink the balance sheet today, even with those changes. Okay, <laughs> that was long enough. No, very helpful. Very helpful. And then just to describe maybe why or what the effects are for the banking system on each bucket. So as you mentioned, we did have COVID, of course, but as anyone who probably knows anything about central banks or the Federal Reserve knows that each one of those buckets of liquidity in, in the Federal Reserve's liability portion of their balance sheet being reserves being one, repos being a second, and the government TGA account being the third, all of them have, have risen uh, since then. I'm just looking at the chart right now, like even before COVID, the government account, as you mentioned, was rising. <laughs> so even though it was draining reserves, it was still rising. They realized they had to put more reserves in, which they did. Uh, repos didn't go actually too crazy at that time, but they have since then. The reverse repos. Uh, reverse repos, correct. It's the, uh, from the perspective of the banks, it's a reverse, they call it the reverse re repo facility. But all three of these big buckets are liabilities on the balance sheet. So what is the point of the government holding a big bucket of liabilities with the Fed? And then the second part of that question would be, why would a bank want to hold, say, repos, reverse repos with the Fed, meaning they have the asset versus uh, bank reserves? Yeah, those are good questions, Matthew. The, the second one is actually a little bit uh, <laughs> harder to answer. The first one is relatively easy, relatively. Uh, of course, the government has spending to do, and it wants to maintain a balance in its own account at the Fed. The government's one of the few authorities, the Fed general government, that can keep an account at the Fed that's not a bank. And uh, uh, so uh, <clears throat> they want to have a certain amount of funds, as it were, for a rainy day in the TGA account. Now, in the past, uh, that wasn't a big deal. But for various reasons, the uh, Trump administration uh, decided that uh, they were going to <laughs> increase that rainy day fund. And COVID only caused them to have to do so to a much larger expense, extent. Of course, we all know that the government spent a great deal of money during COVID uh, 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 for all sorts of reasons. Um, in addressing the problem, and uh, and uh, it had to have a balance to uh, draw on in order to make these payments. So, so you had the, the planned increase in the account balance, the Treasury account balance, that was uh, already in the works, and then you had COVID, and <laughs> basically Congress. Uh, authorizing, putting a lot more money in those in that account to be drawn on for emergency COVID payments. So that's sort of the story of what happened to the TGA there. The the main thing that's the Treasury General account, but the main thing that uh, the bottom line on all this is that the Treasury General account has become a lot more important in recent years than it has been in the past. And every dollar that goes into that account is a dollar less of Federal Reserve money available to be in bank reserves. It's either in one place or it's, you know. Uh, and so that's the sense in which increases in the Treasury general account balances are uh, have as their counterpart a reduction in the available supply of 
of bank reserves, other things equal. We could follow that logic, though, with repos, which is interesting too, right? A repo is a reverse repo from the perspective of the banks. Liability for the Fed is another factor draining bank reserves. Draining so, reserves. That's yeah. Right. So why do banks want to hold repos? It used to be, by the way, that the main thing you worried about draining reserves was currency. People taking currency out of their banks drains reserves. Now that's kind of small beer. <laughs> We've got all these other factors that have become relatively much more important than they have been in the past. And they're not just more important, but they, they can behave skittishly, especially during emergencies, making it difficult uh, for the Federal Reserve to maintain control of interest rates uh, uh, be, because its ability to do that depends on how scarce reserves are in the economy. So um, your second question was about the bank's uptake of reverse uh, participation in the Federal Reserve's reverse repo program. And uh, I think I'd like to step back in answering it by pointing out that originally the reverse repo program was meant to be uh, 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 accessed mainly by non-bank counterparties, mutual funds, uh, some some GSEs. And uh, it was there as a kind of a SOP to maintain uh, 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 to maintain the lower end of the Federal Reserve's interest rate target range. Basically, uh, um, the the Federal Reserve's interest rate rate on reserves that it pays banks would be also uh, all, it would only need to set that to also control short term interest rates if there were no parties that banked with the Fed that weren't eligible aren't eligible for interest on reserves. But because uh, those parties did exist and do exist, what was happening was they were, in effect, um, they were offering to uh, place funds. They were, getting, they were getting funds that they couldn't earn interest on reserves on, and they were trading them in the Federal Reserve uh, Fed funds market to banks in order to capture some interest. And those deals were being made at interest rates obviously somewhat lower than the interest rate on reserves. So the interest rate on reserves didn't tie down or tie up, as it were, the effective federal funds rate. To limit the extent to which the effective federal funds rate fell below the interest rate on reserves, the Fed introduced the overnight reverse repo facility. Basically, it said, okay, you, you counterparties who can't do, who aren't banks and can't earn interest on reserves, we're going to pay you this much to repo with us. And the idea is that since you can, that you can, you never have to earn less than that dealing with some banks, we, we can in that way make sure that the Fed funds rate never drops below our reverse repo rate. I hope that made sense. So it was a, a floor uh, below. So now the interest rate 
that the Fed could reliably, or so it thought, reliably keep interest rates from moving beyond a corridor represented by the interest rate on reserves at the top end and the uh, overnight repo rate at the bottom end. And the idea is, okay, now we've got things under control that can bounce around between those two rates, but that's that's okay. And now... <laughs> The mystery that this is getting finally to your question is how come banks are now putting, uh, uh, selling treasuries to the Fed uh, in return for getting a reverse repo rate that's less than the interest rate they can earn on reserves? And the answer is that uh, holding reserves now has certain regulatory costs, particularly reserves are counted in the formula that is used to determine how much capital banks need. And uh, the capital cost of having reserves, that is the mandatory capital costs, are such that banks are actually better off, the big ones, holding fewer reserves and, in fact, selling reserves for treasuries or the other way than what, what I said before. It's kind of backwards. They're selling reserves to the Fed and, and uh, getting rid of the reserves in order to not have to bear the burden, the regulatory burden that holding reserves involves. Uh, and so they don't have to come up with that much extra capital. And that's what's going on now. So the interaction of the reverse repo facility with the rules determining how much capital banks have to hold and the fact that they have to hold capital even to offset or as a fraction of their reserves. All of this has added up to banks deciding they're going to pump a lot of money into the Federal Reserve System through its reverse repo facility. They have sold their treasuries to the Fed in exchange for a balance that is not exactly a reserve balance. They've got reserves. From the perspective of the repo, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The reverse repo facility. Yeah. Not talking about the reserve part, which they have plenty, as you mentioned. But from the perspective of the reverse repo facility, just to summarize, again, they are selling additional treasuries to the Fed in exchange for a balance that they also have at the Fed. But the expectation is, is that when they have to buy them back, they will buy them at a profit. It saves them capital. If because of the, uh, sta- the uh, supplementary liquidity ratio, which is a real, uh, uh, an extra burden that the big banks have to bear, uh, capital burden, and the way the capital requirement, the way that thing is calculated, there was a big, there was a big, argument back in 2019, because this was a factor back then, about uh, changing the rules so that reserves were not considered to be part of a bank's assets in calculating, or part of the bank's, uh, sorry, <laughs> so that uh, the reserves would would not be counted as part of the overall size of a bank's balance sheet in determining how much capital it needed. And uh, that is subtract the reserve component out. And they actually did that for a while following that emergency, but it was a temporary measure and then it was 
it was uh, not made permanent. So the the result of all this is that that the uh, the penalty from accumulating lots of reserves is back in place. But I just want to go back to this reverse repo facility and the net effect there, because you were saying that they are not holding cash. It's true they're not holding as many reserves, I guess, that theoretically they could have. But the repo transaction, as we were talking pre-show, as far as I understand, the repo party is the Fed, actually. They're the ones that hold uh, a treasury security during the life of that repo, whether it's overnight or not, on their balance sheet as an asset. And the reverse repo party being the banks, their asset is a ledger entry, which is similar to a bank reserve. No, but it doesn't count as it. It's a loan. What's going on with these is that um, the, the, the banks, the bank reserves, because of the a supplementary leverage ratio, uh, add to their capital costs. And so the <clears throat> what banks want to do is to have fewer reserves. And uh, they can do this by selling reserves, trading reserves overnight for uh, 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 reverse repos. And so their reserve balances will go down and their reverse repo balances will go up, other things equal. So they probably don't even have to move the treasuries. The treasury securities just stay anyway as an asset on the Fed's balance sheet and they're just trading the liabilities. Well, this is the funny thing about reverse repos is that the asset doesn't move. Um, <laughs> it's it's hypothecated uh, and effectively. Um, so that, that gets a little bit weird. But um, in any event, the banks are trying not are not using they're not trying to increase their their cash holdings they're trying to actually reduce them in exchange for repos makes perfect sense where you're talking about exchanging reserves for repos i'm just curious if you know this the actual treasury security in that transaction it sits with the fed though right technically it's a purchase and sale but the 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 but it doesn't you know, it stays. It's uh, it stays technically as part of the. Uh, 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 it's effectively think of it as collateralizing the transaction. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. Right. Think think about it as collateralizing a loan from the banks to the Fed. Yes, understood. So they're drawing, they're drawing on the value of the security. That's right. With the new facility. The net net of it basically is, as you said, just to summarize here for the listener, because I'm looking at the numbers, uh, notes are only 26% of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, they used to be pre-2008, 58%. And from my research on other central banks, it's, you know, physical currency is much higher percentage of that still pre-quantitative easing days. Uh, now reserves are only about 36% of the balance sheet, but repos and, and the government account we discussed earlier is much smaller, only 6%, but repos still almost as big, almost as big as the reserves there. It's 29% now of the Fed's balance sheet. That is a liability for the Fed and an asset for banks collateralized by treasury securities. What do you think it means for the future of 
I guess, banking the way that this this works. I mean, what are what are some of the indications on uh, if the Fed should be worried about something? Will we face more hiccups in the market like we had before uh, in 2019? Or are there any other lessons that you're drawing from this? The big lesson I draw from this uh, is part of a, a general <laughs> a general uh, hobby horse of mine that that I've had that I've been riding pretty much since the beginning of the financial crisis or since since late uh, since 2000 October 2008 when the Fed first introduced interest on reserves that step led to the inauguration at first more or less inadvertent of the floor operating system that it's been relying on ever since. And that's a system where instead of keeping reserves scarce all the time uh, and controlling interest rates by varying the degree of reserve scarcity through open market operations, the Fed uh, tries to sustain a very abundant supply of reserves. So banks technically have all the reserves and they need and more and they never have to go borrow. They have to never have to go banging for reserves. This was the theory. And now the, the only thing that uh, is needed for regulating <clears throat> the cost of credit in the economy is uh, the correct setting of the interest rate on reserves and for reasons I mentioned before, uh, the complementary interest rate on overnight uh, uh, repos, reverse repos. Now, <clears throat> oh, the big lesson is that <clears throat> although in theory this is a nice, simple approach, in practice it's a real mess. It has just led to all kinds of trouble. The most obvious fact being that it takes trillions of dollars of reserves and counting maybe <laughs> to keep this system working the way it's supposed to. That is, Turns out it's not so easy to keep banks flush with more reserves than they need. And the banks find all kinds of ways to, to like the reverse repo. The reverse repo facility was set up to set up to, to, to prevent one problem, right? And now the banks are using it because they don't want to have all these reserves because they're being penalized for holding them. Well, guess what? That means if you want to keep ample reserves, you need an even bigger balance sheet because the reserves that you're putting in, half of them or more, ending up going back to the Fed in the repo operations. So the whole thing's a gigantic Rube Goldberg machine and a very poorly functioning one at that. And um, and so I, that that's the, you know, standing away from everything. That's the big picture is we, we've been sold a, 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 a pig in a poke when the Fed said, oh, here's a fancy new operating system that's going to make life simple for us. It has made life complicated. It has cost, uh, it is uh, meant having the Fed become five times bigger than it ever was, or at least four times bigger. And, um, and it isn't working that well. Monetary control has not been easier or more reliable. And so I think it's been a big disaster. But unfortunately, as I found out <laughs> in many different contexts, but especially over the last few years, no matter what the Fed does, if you say it is screwed up, you'll get a million people saying that, that 
how, you know, that, 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 that things are just fine and this is how it's supposed to be and it was all planned that way and how can you judge, etc., etc. And so <laughs> um, I'm afraid that this is another of those cases where what seems to me like all kinds of evidence that the Fed screwed up I mean, screwed up in choosing this new operating system and choosing to stick with it, um, is nevertheless being portrayed by the technocrats as if it, it were working just fine. And I hope your audience doesn't buy that. Well, they don't. They definitely don't, as you probably know, George. They can be pretty bristly. When I talk to Fed people, I want to say to them, well, exactly what, just, just tell me exactly what has to happen before you admit that this is a mistake. What counts? What counts? And the, 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 you never get an answer to that. It's, it's never, there's never enough trouble for a Fed officials to say, yeah, this was something we shouldn't have done. You know, maybe 50 years from now they'll say it, but they're not going to say it in our lifetimes. <laughs> well, the wild thing is that's how, that's how these big government... Uh, institutions continue on, isn't it? They make mistakes and they get more power as a result. So here we have a setup that uh, was supposed to simplify things. Maybe, okay, the Fed's balance sheet would have to be, you know, let's let's say two trillion instead of one. Uh, but no, it's, it's eight trillion. And uh, it's not clear that it's ever going to get that much below there. And then it's going to start growing again. So it really, it really is part of a general phenomenon with the Fed and with other bureaucracies, government bureaucracies, as you suggested, Matthew, that when they screw up, more often than not, they become bigger. They become bigger and, yeah. and become more powerful and intrude in people's affairs more. And... Uh, I wrote an op-ed on this subject some years ago, and it was, I think the title was, um, At the Fed, Nothing Succeeds Like Failure. And, um, and that was before the great financial crisis. And I, I, I must say, I, I don't think anything that's happened since has, has uh, re refuted what I claimed in that piece. I mean, obviously, I'd love to pick your brain on all sorts of uh, like the ripple effects from that with the economy and inflation and all the rest. But I think in the interest of time, I want to keep, I want to keep the questions going on this repo sort of theme and bringing it into the, to the idea of stable coins. So repos, as I was talking to you about pre-show, they used to be calculated by the Fed. They're still there, obviously. The broader economy repos that were in the banks and not with the Federal Reserve with any Fed funds they were cash-like activities. You know, by the time in 2006, when the Fed stopped calculating M3, they were, I believe, something like $500 billion. Uh, now this uh, reverse repo facility, which is just a ledger entry with the, uh, with the Fed, that's $2.5 But outside of that, based on some of the data that the Fed does publish, you know, it's, it could be $3.5 more repos on top of that. So... You know, they don't calculate M3 anymore. We have Euro dollars, which is another just huge liquidity pool, uh, basically dollar-denominated accounts outside of the jurisdiction of the Federal Reserve and its banks around the world. So these, there's a lot of dollars around the world, and it's only increasing. 
And I, I find it's interesting. I'll try to, I'll try to bring it back to a question here, but obviously we've had turmoil in the crypto markets in the last month with the FTX saga, which I'm sure you've been following, perhaps enjoying. I have, uh, not, not enjoying in a- No, I won't say I've been genre. enjoying it. <laughs> I, I, I don't have that much sang froid, you know. Well, for, for Bitcoiners, uh, we've been warning people, you know, don't put your money on exchanges like this beyond, uh, you know, if you, if you really want to trade caveat mTOR, go for it. At least that's my view. But obviously this was, uh, this was a Ponzi and a fraud, which is a whole other issue. But the FTX breakdown was $10 billion. And you probably could go a little bit higher if you counted the loss to market value, which they were absolutely a part of for the first part of this year as well. So 10, 20 billion, whatever it was. But we're talking, you know, I'm looking at these reports from the Fed, George. Their rounding error on, on assets and liabilities repurchase agreements can be $400 billion, <laughs> where they can't count up if the repos are matching assets and liabilities. They're counting, they're recording what they can. But at times, it can be a $400 billion rounding error on top of the trillions of repos that are outside of that and euro dollars on top of that. And money market mutual funds are on top of that. So like trillions and trillions, the, the, the money does keep coming. And, you know, I don't know how much role the Federal Reserve has in all of this, but I'm pretty bullish if you just <laughs> look at it from this, the flea that is cryptocurrency or Bitcoin in, in particular and uh, Bitcoin balances, Bitcoin UTXOs versus just the absolute elephant that's just dwarfing it, that is dollar balances. It's pretty nuts. Let's, first of all, uh, take some of the mystique and some of the, uh, and some of the, uh, um, uh, some of the, mis some of the misconceptions out of this notion of the repos being some kind of extra factor in money growth. Sure. <clears throat> Remember, What's really essential here is the growth in the Fed's balance sheet. That's what's determining the total amount of Federal Reserve base dollars in the system. And no, nobody's adding to that except the Fed. Nobody's adding except the Fed. The repos are growing, as we were saying before, uh, because uh, various institutions uh, that get hold of these base dollars uh, cannot uh, can can best uh, benefit by. In a sense, in essence, selling them back to the Fed short term, and that's what banks are doing. So it isn't as if the the repos are adding to the growth of base dollars; they're just a form that that growth takes. Uh, at least the repos at the Fed. Obviously, private repos are leveraging on the base, so they do add in the same way that fractional reserve banking adds to the total of dollar supply, not the base dollar supply. So, so, so there's, it's really, it really boils down to how much quantitative easing the Fed has done and how much fractional reserve lending is going on on top of that very, very big base. Um, and, and so it's not as if the basic principles have changed. The scale has changed dramatically. The other thing to, to keep in mind is that the way this new monetary system works, precisely because it's meant to be an abundant reserve system, is that the fractional, <laughs> the fractional reserve aspect uh, 
has become one where the fraction of reserves that institutions are holding to back whatever liabilities they're creating has become much, much larger. In other words, the effective reserve ratio is higher and the money multiplier, reserve multiplier is much smaller. That's what an abundant reserves system entails, which is a long-winded way of saying that the extent to which total, the total spendable monetary resources, dollar resources of the public has grown, and it has grown, has not been uh, proportional to the growth in the Federal Reserve base dollars. Uh, they've gone wild because we've created a system where you need a lot more of them to do the same thing that many fewer used to be able to do. So, yeah, so, so Bitcoiners should not, nobody should generalize from how big the Fed has gotten to how much extra spending power is in the economy because those things are not related proportionately. And your thesis on why the non-base money so the bank credit money is exploding in a way that I would think, as you were alluding to, is quite different than a pre-2007 world. If we were in the pre-2007 world, uh, in the interest rate structure, that is the relationship between what banks earn on reserves on one hand and what they can earn by lending on the other, was similar to what it was in that world. Then uh, all the quantitative easing the Fed has done would by now have brought us hyperinflation or something, you know, up there. It hasn't. It has, of course, recently we've had a lot of inflation, not hyperinflation. And so we have gotten into a situation uh, where the total amount of reserve creation can be said of money creation that the Fed has engaged in can be said to have become excessive. But, but if we were operating under the old system, the same amount of Federal Reserve dollar creation that we've experienced in recent years would have led to far greater inflation. I think that a lot of the discussion of inflation on the part of not just the Bitcoin community, but the free market community, broadly speaking, a lot of the discussion seems to be anticipating that because the Fed has expanded so much that we should have and eventually will have uh, as much inflation as we would have had before with, old, with the old operating system in place. And I'm afraid that it's the case that many people don't seem to understand that there's been a major change in the operating system, the Fed's operating system since 2008, and they aren't taking that into account. The bottom line here is the Fed can get away with a lot more expansion of its balance sheet uh, before pro it provokes a dramatic deterioration of the value of the dollar than would have been the case years ago. It doesn't mean, as we know, that <laughs> doesn't mean the Fed can't <laughs> cause the dollar to depreciate by expanding too much. 
it does mean that it takes a lot more expansion to create the amount of depreciation less expansion would have led to some years back. And I think that is a, a fair point, And that's a subtle point that many uh, just don't take into account. Maybe not even free market people, maybe just people randomly quoting things in the press. I still hear monetarist types talking as if uh, the, 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 the straight old quantity theory ought to be working the way it always did, where, you know, if, you, if the Fed expands uh, uh, its balance sheet, uh, triples its balance sheet, uh, we're going to necessarily see a tripling of the broad money supply and a tripling of prices, et cetera, et cetera. In, in, a, in the new reserve, uh, in the new operating system where interest on reserves is the key element to determining yep. the stance of monetary policy, in principle, the balance sheet can grow a lot and nothing else happens. In principle. Do you have any idea... I mean, I know this is, as you said, been your hobby horse for since the beginning. I mean, how much bigger can it grow then? And how, like, what is there a breaking point? Do repos have anything to do with it? Are they actually going to allow it to go even further? <laughs> the main thing <clears throat> is that um, what matters, what's really governing the state of the monetary economy is not the size of the balance sheet so much as where the Fed sets the interest rate on reserves. So um, obviously people can spend more or spend less and that's going to, whatever else is true, that's going to affect the rate of inflation. After COVID settled down, we started spending all that money that was out there. That caused prices to go up. At that point, the Federal Reserve needed to respond. But shrinking the balance sheet was not really what mattered. It needed to raise interest, the interest rate it set on reserves and the reverse repo rates. And it took its time, its sweet time to start responding. Uh, it had some reasons for waiting because we knew supply side factors were involved and there was some case to be made for letting the price level recover from its COVID era lows, if you like, or the inflation rate. In any event, uh, though, what governs what governs how much inflation we have today is where the Fed sets those administrative interest rates, not the size of the balance sheet. The size of the balance sheet is something we should be concerned about. And I, I'd like, to, <laughs> I hate the fact that it's so gigantic. It does cause a lot of trouble. The whole operating system causes trouble. But the, th the one thing we, we shouldn't, we, we needn't worry about is that the size of the balance sheet is going to be a direct determinant of how much inflation we have. That's a mistake today. It wasn't a mistake before 2007. It wasn't a very important mistake. But today it's a mistake to, to look at the balance sheet size as an indicator of how loose or tight monetary policy is. It doesn't work that way anymore. I agree with that. But as you may remember, I do do this study every quarter on uh, the monetary base of 50 of the largest central banks. The Fed's monetary base, which will include, include paper currency here, so it's a little bit damp compared to... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it belongs, yeah. This, yeah, this rate would be higher even if you just looked at reserves. But if we did the whole monetary base, the Fed has increased the balance sheet 9.1% uh, 9 9 since uh, 1969. Um, obviously, that number is is going higher in recent years. But 
I understand exactly what your point is, and I hope our listeners do as well, that the interest on reserves here are key, and not all of those reserves will be loanable funds, basically, because the Fed is paying a better interest rate on them, or quote-unquote better interest rate. But the rest of the world is also expanding a lot. I have come up with this figure, which I quote every quarter. Uh, you can take of it what you will. But you know, if you look at all the central banks, Brazil, Argentina, you look at Turkey, you look at some good ones, um, maybe like Singapore or uh, Hong Kong, which is obviously a, a currency board, regardless of the exchange rate regime. And if you look at all of the monthly growth uh, that those balance sheets have done over the years. And I've even done this with currencies that have reset. Like Argentina, they reset their currency, you know, like five times, Brazil, <laughs> six times in the last 50 years. If you compound the monthly growth average for each of those uh, balance sheets, regardless of where they started, and then weight that average by the, by the monetary base uh, in U.S. dollar terms, I get about a percent a month, 1% a month, or 12.8% compounded per year. Um, I definitely wouldn't go to the monitor school with like saying that's definitely what the price inflation is going to be. What do you think about that number? Uh, I, 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 it, it, is not, it is not very informative. Uh, those countries like the U.S., not all countries have switched to the operating system that we have. We have a floor system. Similar systems do exist in, uh, elsewhere, including the euro area in England. So important places. It's not just us. Those places you'll see, those are the places where uh, quantitative easing is most, uh, uh, it, where central banks can get away with the most quantitative easing. And indeed, the places where it becomes their only recourse during times of recession, if they want stimulus, they can't, and they can't lower interest rates any lower when you have zero interest rates, that's their recourse. Uh, and so, um, uh, but but they can they can sustain very large balance sheets with a floor system even after the recession ends and this is the key uh, no matter how big the federal reserve's balance sheet gets there is some uh, setting of its interest rate on reserves in fed fund and uh, overnight repo repurchase rate uh, such that will keep inflation on target. So this is what we have is the balance sheet has become a free parameter in these systems. And that's why you can never say that if the balance sheet grows X amount, that means the probability and extent of inflation are going to be Y and Z. You can never say that because you have to say what's happening to the interest rate that the Fed is paying on reserves and the other interest rate it administers. So that's the problem. With the new operating system, the balance sheet could be anything. Uh, the, 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 the stance of monetary policy depends not on the balance sheet alone and mainly not on the balance sheet at all, but mostly on the settings of these administered interest rates. So you can have more inflation when the balance sheet is growing but you might not. You can also have more inflation when the balance sheet isn't growing because interest rates, the Fed's interest rate settings are too low. So uh, it's just really dangerous to put too much emphasis on what the balance sheets are doing in these systems. 
Some of the other countries whose statistics you looked at, Matthew, are no doubt ones where they still have the old corridor-type operating systems in place. In those systems, it's relatively safer, not entirely safe, but somewhat, it's safer to look at the growth of the balance sheet and speculate about what that entails for inflation. But it's extremely, uh, the relationship is extremely unreliable in the U.S. and other system uh, countries with floor operating systems. Mind you, this is not an argument uh, for quantitative easing, for big balance sheets, for a floor system. I have great, uh, 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 <laughs> I, I have uh, a lot uh, that's critical to say about all these things. And it's certainly not an argument that, that, uh, that we don't need to worry about inflation. Uh, I'm not uh, suggesting any of those things at all. Um, I, I'm merely saying that uh, we should worry about inflation we do have too much of it right now, and we have, uh, it's a serious problem. But uh, we should not think that avoiding it is simply a question of not having balance sheet, or ba- the Fed's balance sheet grow very much, or of shrinking the balance sheet. In this new system, the Fed could in- cause excessive inflation, even if it stopped growth in the balance sheet for some time. Let me ask you one more then. I've done the same analysis, obviously, on the same 50 uh, currencies for the physical aspect of their monetary base. Would you say that has any further indicators on inflation? Because those are obviously out in the economy, sloshing around. You're talking about the paper currency? The actual, yeah, and coin, the whole physical currency portion. No, I would say not. The amount of paper currency outstanding tends to adjust with the overall scale of money growth and spending growth. So um, whatever the Fed's doing that causes too much money to be in the economy, the currency will then go up by that amount. But it's following the general needs of the, con- the economy. You can't say it's, it, you can't say that the, the amount of currency being issued is itself what's driving it. It's 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 a it's a good indicator, in retrospect, <laughs> of, of of how nominal values are growing in the economy. It's not a good predictor of where they're going. But at some point, don't we have to make some of this more simplistic to understand for sort of everyday people? Because here's a stat: I, I've run this through when I talk about CBDCs because I actually don't think. I mean, there's a lot of news about CBDCs and in Nigeria and, you know, in the Bahamas and certain places. But these are relatively small balance sheets uh, where those are being uh, implemented. Uh, I'm not a fan of CBDCs. They're very dangerous, Orwellian, all the rest. But if you compared, George, if you compared the physical currency growth over the last 50 years of all currencies, weight them, average them, you get uh, about 10.3% per year. So it's not as high as the monetary base growth. Uh, which includes reserves, obviously, but you get 10.3% per year. The population over the last 50 years grows at 1.5% per year. So, George, isn't there something we can look to to these numbers to indicate? I mean, I know you're an NGDP uh, targeting 
person. And that's a whole thing that I encourage our listeners to, to, to learn more about. But if we just look at some simple, simple metrics, I mean, the people that are supposed, to, the demand that is supposed to sop up this money, they only grow at 1.5% per year, which is a rate of growth slowing. Physical currency, just a simple metric, grows at 10.3%. That is rising. How can anyone look at that and say that's not going to be quote-unquote inflationary? Well, the simple answer to that is that it, it is, it, it is it, currency growth is geared to the overall scale of spending in the economy. It is not what's driving the overall scale. So yes, when you have, when you have inflationary circumstances, you're going to have more currency outstanding. But the question is, what's driving that? See, we were talking about before how what matters now is the interest rate the Fed sets. So let's suppose that we had a Fed that didn't grow the balance sheet at all. But it sets the interest rate on reserves and on uh, reverse repos too low. As a result, lending is encouraged, spending goes up, and people take a proportionate, they proportionately increase their use of currency. So we'll see the currency supply going up. And so that'll be a good indicator that there's too much spending going on. But it's not really telling us what the source of the problem is. I mean, it's safe to assume that the Fed has got things wrong because it's its job to keep control of inflation. But it would be a mistake to say, this is a good example of the quantity theory at work where the expansion of the money supply is causing prices to go up. That would be a mistake. That would be a wrong analysis of what's going on. It is easy money, but it's not growth of the Fed's balance sheet. And it's not even growth in currency, even though currency is going up, because it's going up mainly as a consequence of, of, uh, of the general increased scale of spending. So what you really want to look at, what really matters is where the interest rate targets the Fed sets uh, are in relation to where they should be to avoid inflation. So, so this is a, these are subtle points, but, um, but what I'm trying to suggest is that we do need to get away from simplistic notions that we have a causal sequence that goes from creating too many units of money uh, 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 at the Fed to, to grow from growth in its balance sheet, that that's causing the inflation. It's really a low setting of interest rate targets today that causes more lending, that causes more spending. And then that can cause people to uh, use more currency and that can make the balance sheet grow. So the causal mechanism is not what you might think by looking at the statistics of the currency supply on one hand and looking at inflation on the other. If you do that, it kind of looks like, oh, the more currency the Fed puts out, the higher prices grow. But you'd be getting the, the mechanism backwards. Uh, 
it's not horribly wrong. <laughs> uh, the correlation is significant. It means something's going on that connects these things. But the mechanism is very different from what a crude quantity theory would say. So, so CBDCs, I'm skeptical. Bank of Japan over the summer released a report that they don't really see much use case for it. The problem, as I see it, is first of all, as I just mentioned, physical currency stocks are flying around the world, regardless of where you look. They're not like lower. They're not going lower. They're, they're in high single digits to double digit growth. That is a competition for retail. CB- Let's just talk about retail CBDCs here. I think wholesale is like, doesn't make any sense anyway. It's the same thing as a bank reserve. But a retail CBDC has to compete with a very pretty robust physical currency stock around the world that, that does increase. And it also has to compete with the idea that if it would take off, your banking, your banks in your system might not be too happy because if they're not really going to get market share from physical currency, then the only place that that can drain and go into a CBDC type of an instrument would be draining bank deposits. And your banks wouldn't be happy with that. So I think CBDCs have a lot of headwinds. What are your latest thoughts on CBDCs of the retail variety? Uh, I think this is one of those ideas that uh, that's a populist idea that's being pushed. The central banks are being pushed to adopt it. But as often happens in cases like this, once the central banks allow some of their technocrats to, uh, for political purposes, I believe, they, they, they say, okay, we'll do something with this. And then they sign it to some technocrats. Well, they've just created a powerful interest group lobby within the central bank itself. And now this lobby is going to be a force that causes the central bank to move towards wanting the thing. The thing it didn't want before, but was only studying to get the government off its back. That's what I think we've seen happening here in the United States. A very bad idea that isn't going to do any good to anybody who uh, deserves it, <laughs> uh, is, being, is becoming more and more of a serious, uh, 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 something uh, being taken seriously. The best minds out there don't favor it. The Japanese report is one of many, many reports from experts saying, why are we doing this or what's the point? So um, as for what what would be the consequence of central bank digital currency, um, I don't think it's going to compete much with ordinary demand deposits, ordinary bank deposits, unless it pays an interest rate that makes it more attractive which is also possible, which is something the populists also want. And uh, once again, you never know when central banks will come around to accepting their ideas. Congress certainly might be persuaded to try to force their hand. So I, but, um, but uh, if it, it isn't going to bear a higher interest rate than um, not just in ordinary bank deposits, but what, what, I've had debates on this with David Andalfato. We debate everything on uh, Twitter. It's very useful. Um, what, what, what? My point is that I, 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 that banks, banks do have some monopoly power. I think they think there's some plenty of evidence of that. So they don't pass on as much of their interest on reserve earnings as they might. 
the Fed could be a healthy influence in that regard. My fear, though, is that if it pays the full Monty interest on reserves on balance retail balances, despite the costs, the great costs, much greater costs of administering retail accounts, instead of letting the banks administer and pay interest after deducting expenses and what have you, then then you could see some substantial disintermediation of the banking system. Uh, and what's even more scary is not a permanent one-time disintermediation, but the possibility that fluctuations in market interest rates will con- create situations where there's big cyclical disintermediations at the worst possible times, like a depression. Suddenly, everybody's taking money out of their banks uh, because the uh, CBDC pays more. That's the kind of thing that worries me. Uh, And that's the kind of competition with bank deposits I worry most about. On the side of currency, here things get a little bit messy. The Fed assures us that they're not getting rid of paper dollars anytime soon. Uh, To that extent, of course, uh, people won't need central bank digital currency uh, as a substitute for paper dollars. But... (laughs) What's happening in other parts of the world and more sl- is happening here more slowly is that merchants don't want to deal with paper currency. And as more and more of them don't want to deal with paper currency, we could be moving towards a cashless society, not because of the government, not because the Fed doesn't let us have paper money, but because merchants don't want to deal with it for, for good reasons. It's messy, inconvenient, dangerous. And so then you get to the question, okay, suppose no one, I'm just taking an extreme case, suppose you can't buy anything with paper money anymore. I'm just taking an extreme case. What's the obligation of the Fed in that case? What duty does it have to people who don't want to deal with ordinary banks? Should there be an electronic Fed alternative if there were, would it, would it really serve any purpose? Would the kind of people who can't have bank accounts be able to use it? Would they want to use it? Would it serve their needs? These are all extremely important questions, and I don't have any good answers to them. But I think that uh, the move towards a cashless society poses important questions about the role of central banks fiat money issuing central banks and whether they need to be able to give people something. Let's, let's imagine that you have a banking panic. And you know I've argued that these would be less common if governments didn't screw up banking so much. But suppose you have a banking panic in a cashless society. What, what do people take out of their banks? And what do they do with it? <laughs> you know, um, uh, I think it's an, these are interesting questions to ask. And I can think of, I can imagine making a case in principle where you say, well, we need to have the central bank supply some kind of uh, retail something that people can have if they distrust their banks. Remember, it's a fiat money world. And, um, and so they have a duty, a positive duty to, 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 to give them some basic money in a form that they can actually spend. 
I'm going to leave you with that thought, Matthew, which is not a very free market Bitcoiner thought, but I'm posing it as a question, mind you. I'm not taking a position here. So I don't want anybody yelling at me about how I just said that we need C CBDCs, but it's an interesting question. If we had the time, it would be perfect for me to just follow up on uh, where Bitcoin fits into that picture. But uh, I think we'll have to save yeah, that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, maybe I'll inspire you to write something about that. Yeah, or we'll save that for the next one, George. So okay. I really appreciate uh, your time here today. Thank you very, very much. And enjoy Spain. Thank you very much, Matthew. Enjoyed it a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.